Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. As Mike explained, uh, he is looking at an Old Testament book, the book of 1 Samuel, one of my favourite books. Great narrative, great story, reveals so much to us about God. Mike is going to be covering a couple of chapters, and I just want to read for you the first, uh, getting into chapter 4. But it's also, so it's talking about Israelites, God's people. It also talks about the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, which is um, God's presence was sort of seen and felt through the Ark of the Covenant. It sort of sets up Israel fighting the Philistines, their, their arch em- enemy that keep coming at them. And this is where we pick up the story and then uh, yeah, lead on to what Mike is going to be showing us. So it's 1 Samuel chapter 4, uh, picking it up at verse 1. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The, Israel, uh, the Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Then the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp. All Israel raised a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What is all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We are doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Mikey's going to pick up that story for us. Thanks, Mikey. Hi, Southside. Again, it's a privilege to be here uh, to bring God's word to you. Uh, eight years have flown past, and I know so many of you in the room who have walked with us, prayed for us. Uh, if I can um, ask you guys to keep praying for us, that'd be, that'd be great. Uh, we're at a, actually a point, I was going to say this earlier, but we're at a point in our church where we're starting to outgrow our venue. So we've been there for about eight years now. Uh, we've been in the only place, same place, for eight years now, and uh, we're hitting you know, up to nearly 100 people a week and uh, lots of little kids, little um, babies and toddlers running around. So that's, um, 
that's a that's a, a future need for us and rooms for kids and all that sort of stuff. So if you can keep praying for us, that'd be great. Uh, really uh, appreciate the partnership we have with Southside here. Uh, let's get into 1 Samuel. Uh, there's gonna, I'm going to be looking at chapter 5 as well. So if you have your Bibles open, that would actually help so you know where I'm preaching from. But I'll explain some stuff. as I'll, I'll tell the story as I go so you guys know where I'm at. Uh, let's get into it. I always want to pray and ask God to help us understand His Word and for Him to, to convict our hearts as we hear it. So let's do that now. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank You that Your Word is living, that Your Word speaks to us. And Lord, through it, Lord, we can know You and we can have a relationship with You. We do pray now, Lord, that uh, as we hear it, our hearts will be convicted of it, uh, understanding and, and hearing who You are and, and considering how we as, as uh, Your people can live in light of it, how we can live in light of You as our King. So we pray for that now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I came across a new word, and this I hadn't heard this word before, and it was, it was an interesting one. I think I've got it on the screen. Frigga triskaidekaphobia. Uh, Frigga triskaidekaphobia. I don't know if you need to say it that slowly, but that's the word. I think it's nine syllables altogether. Uh, the meaning of this word, I don't know if you've heard of this word before, a fear of Friday the 13th. Did any of you guess that? Fear of Friday the 13th, Frigga Triskai. So if you are, if you fear that day, you're a Frigga Triskai. I don't know if I'm saying this right. Frigga Triskai Decaphobic. Sounds like a swear word almost, right? Uh, it, it somehow became known in the 1800s that Friday the 13th was an unlucky day. And so when people go through bad luck and falls on a Friday the 13th, they begin thinking, right? It's, it's the day that is, un, it's a number day that's unlucky. Uh, and so over time, people have just started to fear that day. They have a fear of Friday the 13th. Now, I don't know if this is real. I saw on Google, but there's a stress management center and Phobia Institute in North Carolina. I don't know if that's real, but it's just on Google. And it says about 17 million people. Now, if you have a fear of Friday the 13th, I'm not judging, okay? People have different fears, I get it. But it's really just a bit of a, a superstition, isn't it? Frigga Triskai Decaphobia. Like, will, will bad luck really happen in this world on that day? Surely not. Surely, surely, like, is everyone in this world going to have a problem, have bad luck on Friday the 13th? If, if you break a mirror, are you really going to have bad luck for the next seven years of your life? Is knocking on wood oh, really going to prevent that bad thing happening to you because you knocked on wood? It sounds silly, doesn't it, when you say it out loud. But I'm not surprised if there are people in this room who, who, who have their own superstitions, right? I grew up with a lot of superstitions. Because when we have those superstitions, we feel like we have a bit of control over our lives, don't we? A bit of control over our luck, even. I mean, if we can avoid bad luck by knocking on wood, why wouldn't we knock on some wood? Now, I'm not sure about you, but even uh, I, I hope that as a Christian, you're not the superstitious type. I mean, I hope not, at least. I know there are Christians who still are, but you know there are things that Christians still do, though, that show that we're superstitious, aren't we? I mean, think about the Christian who wears a cross around our neck, right? The cross around our neck, thinking that it holds power. We might hang up a cross in our house, hoping it'll, it'll, um, it'll put some sort of protective barrier across over, over our home, you know, some emanating some sort of mm, holy power, right? Across over our home. Uh, many years ago, my wife Heidi, uh, when she was a teenager, she was in a youth group, and there was a guy in her youth group at church uh, telling her that when exams came around, he'd listen to Christian music, because Christian music would help him get good results. And we do these things, don't we? 
these random acts of kindness to a stranger and we think that it's going to earn some brownie points with God this week. But isn't that all just really a Christian veneer to thinking we're going to get good luck? A Christian veneer to thinking that some sort of karma? Don't we all come to God with that sort of superstitious attitude at times? Uh, Today I want to ask you, how do you approach God? How do you treat Him? How do you see Him and His power? Do we see Him for who He truly is, or are we trying to control our luck and manipulate Him for our own gain? While Christians today might be led astray by superstitions, this is an issue that's been around for centuries. In humanity, across religions, we go back 3,000 years to this story in the Bible, and even they were superstitious. It's the same issue on how they approach God, Israel, God's people in the Old Testament. But before we get into it, let me just give you a quick you know, bit of context. Uh, in, in chapter 1 and 2, you hear about Hannah. She's singing this song about how great our God is. He's the ruler in throne, sovereign, powerful. He'll provide for his people. Uh, and he provides a son to Hannah called Samuel. And that's who, who this, you know, the, the book is named after. He plays the role of priest and prophet to God's people in the Old Testament. So if you don't know your Bibles very well, that's why it's called 1 Samuel. It's about Samuel. He's a, he's a prophet to God's people. So he, he talks to God. He hears from God. He brings the word of God to the people. Now, chapter 4, verse 1 starts with that. Samuel's word goes out to Israel. But for the next three chapters, 4, 5, 6, you don't hear about Samuel again. You don't hear about the one who is the one talking to God. And that's a big problem, isn't it? That's, a bit, that's an issue. If we're not communicating with God, what are we doing? Let's find out. Let's read again. I'm going to read uh, from verse, um, verse 1, halfway. Uh, the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. Some quick information about the Philistines. They, in history, showed up around 1200 B.C., uh, this is happening around 1000 BC. The Egyptian sources tell us about them. So the Egyptians knew about them. They were known as the Sea People. They settled on the western coast of Israel, and they wanted to extend their ter- territory up into the mountains, right? So here they are in Israel. They're pushing up uh, to the east. They were strong. They were strategic. They were a military threat to Israel. Now, there's no reasoning here for Israel to, to do what they did. God didn't say, go out and battle against the Philistines. Samuel wasn't consulted at all. We don't hear that. They just thought today, today's a good day to go to war. And and it seems like it doesn't take long, right, for the Philistines to defeat Israel. They kill 4,000 of them on the battlefield. That's a lot of people. You'd be scratching your head, wouldn't you? What just happened? How did this happen? How did this happen for, for these people to, this many people to die? It's a question we need to ask. If you were out and you were playing a game of soccer and you were and you, and you, or what, what, participating in a debate perhaps or playing a game of chess and you lost miserably, whatever game you're playing, you would ask what happened, right? How did they defeat me? Didn't I, didn't I have strategy? Or didn't I have enough people on the battlefield? We want to debrief, debrief our moves and our actions with our team, consider how we can do it better, come back stronger and better next time. It'd be foolish not to debrief what happened. So Israel, they come back from the battlefield after losing 4,000. They're in the locker room, you know, with the elders of Israel, and they're asking a very legitimate question here. The soldiers return to camp. The elders of Israel ask, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? They got something right here. Naturally, I think we'd all be asking, why did the Philistines defeat us today? Why were they able to? But no, they asked the right question. Why did the Lord bring defeat? Israel believes in a God that controls all things, a God of providence and sovereignty 
governs the universe. God is responsible for their defeat. So they come up with an answer. Maybe it's because they didn't have the Ark of God with them. I mean, that's worked in the past. The Ark of God has helped them win battles before. Surely if we bring the Ark into battle, we can't lose, right? So in verse 3, it says, Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. What's the Ark of the Covenant? It's this sacred uh, gold-covered box, right? It's like a chest carried by poles uh, designed with cherubim and these angelic winged creatures designed on top. Uh, Inside the box was the tablets of the the Ten Commandments. Uh, So that's why it's referred to the Ark of the Covenant, God's promises to his people uh, and the law by which they live. Now they're acting on past events. The Ark was taken into battle and God helped Israel in the past to defeat the enemies. Right? To give them victory. So they're thinking, if we just bring the ark into battle again, we'll be victorious. You see what's going on, right? They, they treated this ark like a, a secret weapon. The, the, uh, the infinity gauntlet from Avengers or the Elder One from Harry Potter, the, the Death Star from Star Wars. If they just bring this out, this weapon out, everyone will turn to smithereens. Uh, if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, uh, you'd remember the movie Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark, right? The Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh man, I love the indie movies. Temple of Doom, Last Crusade, you have to get onto them if you haven't watched them. Uh, but in The Lost Ark, I've got uh, The Lost Ark, this one. Uh, the plot literally is about the bad guys, the Nazis, searching for the lost Ark of God. This Ark that's mentioned here in 1 Samuel. Uh, in the movie, the Nazis here are after it because they believe it will make their army invincible. And so Indiana Jones, who's on this, you know, he's, he's an adventurous archaeologist, goes on a mission to try and find it before they do, to essentially save the world. But isn't this, you know, this is what Indiana, Indiana Jones does, but that's a fictional movie. Sounds like a lot what Israel was doing 3,000 years ago, isn't it? This superstitious belief in this legendary ark. If Israel um, bring the ark into battle, they'll be practically invincible because God will be out there fighting for them. What are they doing? They're putting their faith in an object rather than in God himself, aren't they? Where is God in all this? Did they even consult him? Did they cry out to him? Did they even ask? The underlying issue is that they thought they could manipulate God. They thought they could manipulate God for themselves. They had this formula, A plus B equals C. So to them, it was a foolproof plan, wasn't it? If the ark is out on the battlefield, surely God won't desert the ark. I mean, that's his throne. That's where he resides. If Israel fails, well, that's going to make God look bad. God will be humiliated. His reputation will be shot. It will bring shame to his name. His honor is at stake. Surely they can't lose. It sounds so wrong, doesn't it? I mean, so manipulative. If we lose, God, you're going to look bad. The world is watching. You better come through. But isn't that type of manipulation so common in our humanity as well? I mean, teenagers, I was a teenager once... We do it to our parents, don't we? We clean up our rooms, we cook a nice dinner, and then we ask for permission to go to that party. And when the parents say no, we, we, we yell at them and scream, you're so ungrateful, you're so unfair. And the parents look like the bad guys. Don't we all do that in relationships sometimes? In friendships, married couples? You treat the other person really well, you smother them with love, and then when they say no or disagree with you, we blame them, like we're owed something, when in fact we were just manipulating Israel want God to come through, and by bringing this ark of God to battle, they treat it like this lucky charm, hoping that they'll have control of the outcome. 
the expectation that God will deliver them. You know, to summarize what happens next, they go into battle, they bring the ark with them, they battle it out, and it's an absolute massacre. Uh, verse 10 says the slaughter was very great. Israel lost not 4,000, but 30,000 foot soldiers. Not only that, the ark of God was captured too, and we hear the two corrupt sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they die. What happens? God squashes their superstitious b- beliefs and attitudes and passes judgment upon his corrupt people. He will not be controlled. He will not be manipulated. In fact, God wants Israel to know that they can't control him, so God lets the ark get captured. The ark of God goes into enemy territory. From Israel's point of view, God has been taken away. His glory has left them. But when we keep reading, we discover that God himself chooses to. He chooses to leave Israel and to flex his power. He will desert Israel and allow the ark to be put in the hands of the Philistines to show Israel and the enemy his power can't be manipulated or tamed. When you come to chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. In verse 1 to 5, in chapter 5, we read about how they, they bring the ark to this place, Ashdod, one of the cities of the Philistines. And in Ashdod, there's a temple of Dagon. That's their god. And they put this chest, this ark, next to their Dagon statue. We read the next day, we read after they do this, the next day they wake up and Dagon, the statue, has fallen face down in front of the ark of the Lord. The statue has fallen down. I don't know if you can picture that in your head, but the statue of the God has fallen face down, so he's in this prostate, prostrate position, as if bowing before the ark of God. But hey, maybe this is just a one-off. So they take Dagon and they put him back up, send him back up, and they go back to sleep. The next day starts again, it's like mafia, you know, you go to sleep, wake up. And the next morning comes around, what happens? Well, it's, it's like Humpty Dumpty, he's had a great fall, Dagon's fallen down again. How embarrassing. But this time, not only Dagon has, not only has he fallen down again before the ark, but his head and his hands have been cut off. That's really creepy, isn't it? I don't know if you can picture that. It's like a horror movie. You know, you come into the room, it's, it, you know, the door's locked, the windows are closed, there's no one there. The air is thick, the hair on your neck stands up. And before you, the statue of your God is face down. His head and his hands have been cut off. No, no one in the room except this chest, this box. It's, it's, pretty, it's a bit eerie, isn't it? It's just sitting there with this fallen statue. The Philistines think they've got Israel's God on a leash, but God quickly shows his power over this powerless God, Dagon. But Dagon was just a statue, right? If God has proved his power enough, he starts bringing disaster upon the Philistines too in chapter 5. They pass the ark from town to town like a hot potato, right? It's like a grenade that's about to go from Ashdod to, to Gath to Ekron. And where, wherever the ark goes, God brings disaster upon the enemy there. Uh, in verse 9, I'm going to read this. It says, chapter 5, verse 9, But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. Right? So he brings disaster upon the city where he, wherever the ark goes. Uh, later on in chapters, you read about how mice infested those cities. So you can imagine the tumors, it's something like the bubonic plague, really. There's a plague that goes throughout the, the, the cities. And so the Philistines, they gather. In verse 11, chapter 5, they call together all the rulers of the Philistines and they said, send the ark of God away. They send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it'll kill us and our people. For death has filled our city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. 
Those who, who, who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. And what we read in chapter 5 really is his supremacy, God's supremacy. It's independent of his people. He doesn't need to be protected or sustained or maintained by his people as if he's reliant on them to function. He will go out. He will fight the enemy with or without us to show who is truly in control and sovereign. Now, while Israel is, is going to ask for a human king to rule over them, and you'll hear about Saul and David later on, hasn't God shown alone that he is sufficient? That he is the king that rules? God can defeat the Philistines without an army, without a human king, because he is the one on the throne. And isn't that why uh, the author here in, in 1 Samuel, he emphasizes a lot about this hand of God, this heavy hand. In chapter 5, it's repeated multiple times. Verse 6, the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod. Verse 7, they cried out that God's hand was heavy on them and Dagon. Verse 9, the Lord's hand was against the city of Ekron. Verse 11, the death had filled the, death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was heavy on it. Contrast that to the Philistine god Dagon. His head and his hands were cut off. The Philistines think they've won the battle, but their god Dagon needed their help to be lifted up with their hands off the ground. He's a powerless God, isn't he? You see, God through uh, uh, you see, God is really this God of of reversals. He he works in a way that's so countercultural to what we expect of him. Uh, in 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 chapter two, verse nine to ten, uh, got this on the screen as well. It says, "It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth." Hannah was singing about this God and His power. See, God's hand is active and sovereign over the enemy, and he will accomplish his purposes without his people needing to even raise their hands. He doesn't need an army of soldiers. He will allow himself to get captured. He won't care if people might think he's a weak, powerless God. He will turn the tables, and in time, he'll reveal his power on his own, single-handedly. He'll defeat the enemy and bring victory for his people. Now, isn't that precisely how God flexes his power in Jesus? Jesus goes to the cross, and in a moment of weakness, in failure and defeat, through a bloody death with nails through hands and feet, it looks like the enemy has won. But isn't this precisely how God works? Even when he allows his ark to be captured and brought into enemy territory, it looks like he's lost. God allows his son to be captured and crucified. But while it looked like Jesus was defeated, God reveals his untamable power and single-handedly defeats sin and death, our greatest enemy. We didn't play a part in that. We didn't have to manipulate the circumstances so that God will act for us. He did that on his own accord. In fact, it was when we were dead in our sin, when we were helpless, that God acted. It's written for us in Colossians 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us of all our sins, having canceled the, ch the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. See, Jesus has defeated the greatest enemy. Sin, death, Satan, he did that without our help. Here's the thing, though. We look at our life and our enemies. We look at our life and our enemies look like our, our anxieties. It looks like our stress, our job situation, our exams, our, our relationship problems, our families, the hurt and pain 
we feel in our lives that seem so overwhelming. Enemies that we just want victory over in our lives. And so what do we do? We access our, our lucky charms, hoping they'll help us. Like, like you know, when you d- if you've ever done an exam, you sometimes have a special pen you use for that exam, hoping that pen will come through for you. Or you go for an interview and you have your lucky undies on, you know? A few holes, that's okay, because, you know, you really want that job, that presentation at work you're going to do. You know, your lucky undies, they'll come through. They'll come through for you. But isn't that the same with our faith? We act as if God is some lucky charm we can manipulate and control, like a magic formula. If I just kneel next to my bed with my hands clasped together like that, God will hear my prayer. It'll be more powerful. It'll be way more powerful than if I'm just lying on my bed like a potato. He won't hear. Those prayers don't work. Come on now. Really? I do believe the posture of prayer matters. Yes, kneeling helps some people with focus, being in a posture of humility. Yeah, sure. Don't get me wrong. It's helpful. You could wake up at dawn. You could do dawn prayers. That's helpful for some people. But do you really think God's going to listen more intently to your prayers as if they have more power because you woke up at dawn? Man, I'll be honest. My, my prayers are powerless before 7 a.m. without a coffee. What starts as a good suggestion becomes a superstition so easily, doesn't it? Stack chairs at church, wash dishes, clean the toilets, whatever. And we, we think that those things will, will, will mean that God's going to come through for us. I'm doing the things that no one else wants to do. God sees that. He'll hear my prayers even more. But do you see what we're doing? Do you see how we can fall into that trap of trying to manipulate God, control Him to do our bidding, when we think our actions can lead to His power? Don't hear me wrong. Those are all good things to do. Wear a cross. Wear a cross if it's a reminder of your faith. Get on your knees and wake up early to pray if that's the best way for you to pray and focus on God. Serve your church through the tasks that no one else will do. But it's not because you're trying to manipulate God. We do it because our God is on the throne. Because He's sovereign. And He's worthy of it. He's worthy of our worship. God is so much bigger than an ark, isn't He? So much bigger than an ark that they think has power. We can't put God into a box. But we can trust Him. We can trust that He's in control. We can trust that He's gone and defeated our greatest enemy. I get it, life is a real struggle for many of us. Unemployment, finances, health, broken relationships, yes. Yet in those moments, we can hold on to hope still, can't we? That Jesus will one day make all things good and right. We can echo Paul's words in Corinthians that God's grace is sufficient even in weakness. There will be enemies in life. They might not magically disappear because you prayed about it. But we can look forward and we can look upward to the God who gave us the greatest victory of all, life over death, a relationship with Him. Sin has been conquered. God in history has acted to meet our greatest need. What will it look like to trust Him if He's the one on the throne in your life? If He's at the center of worship and not us, doesn't it look like following Him in our obedience? This is what I've observed in our culture What I've observed is that God being holy has been really reduced to God being friendly. We call him the big man upstairs rather than my heavenly father. We treat him as a co-pilot functionally in life rather than our king. So when he calls us to take up our cross in obedience, we say things like, well, my idea of God is he wouldn't ask me to do that. 
He doesn't want me to suffer for the sake of the gospel. What? Oh, what? You want me to serve, serve at church? Oh, but that clashes with what I want to do with my time. It sounds like an inconvenience. Surely God doesn't want me to be inconvenienced, right? Or the God I believe in, well, the God I believe in doesn't want me to be unhappy. Surely I can live this way even if the Bible tells me otherwise. He's all, us, he's all about being, us being free, right, to live our own lives. That's the God I want to believe in. Friends, there is only one gospel. That kind of God is not the Christian God. It's not the God of the Bible. It's not the God who is king. That kind of God is a God who serves us and our wants, a God you've tamed to suit you, a God we've put into a box, a version of God that we've created that's about love, yes, but not about holiness. That's about forgiveness, sure, but not about repentance. That wants joy for you but doesn't care about your obedience. Is that the God you've got in mind? If it is, frankly, I, I don't think we believe in the same God. That sounds a bit more like the headless and handless God who has no real power and authority. We have to ask, if he's truly king, if he is, does he have authority over our lives? Will we question and challenge our hearts, the actions that might be more me-centered than God-centered? When we approach God, is it driven by our humble delight in him, or is it driven by some desire to have our needs met for our own gain? Is he worthy of worship as the one who rules us, or is he simply a tool that's useful, a means to get what we want? You can ask yourself with your prayers. Our prayers are really revealing of our hearts, aren't they? Every time you, you share with others how they can pray for you, isn't it often that we ask God that to make our life more comfortable for us? Help me to perform well in my job to get that promotion. Help me to buy that house. Help me with my assignments. God, help me to win in life. But what if we were to come before God and ask Him to give us peace, even in the storms of life? Help us to serve and submit to Him, even when our circumstances, our situation is stressful and busy. Help me to think of others still, even if it might inconvenience me or be a sacrifice of my time. Isn't that what obedience looks like? When God is on the throne and not you or I? Not driven by guilt or duty or some bitter, slavish you know, works-based obedience. It's not that type of obedience, but driven by the, the joy and acknowledgement of our King, who in grace laid down His life for us so we could have the final victory in life. When you get to chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, the ark gets returned to the people of Israel, and they come to their senses. They ask Samuel to cry out to God for them, and they make sacrifices. They turn to God in faith and repentance and obedience. God hears their prayers. They go into battle again. God grants them victory. God didn't need Israel. He didn't need us. But in love, through a relationship, God calls us to trust and depend on Him. Now, you might not be able to tell, but uh, I have an Asian background. And, um, you know, Chinese in particular, right? And I grew up with a lot of superstitions that my parents passed on to me. And one of those superstitions is the number four. Now, if you don't know in Chinese, the number four sounds like a lot like death, right? When you say it in Chinese, it sounds a lot like death. And so uh, an example of, of avoiding the number four, uh, if you ever go into elevators in Asia, in a lot of parts of China or, or other places, you might see that the elevator skips a number, so it goes from three to five. And that's, this is why, because the four is an unlucky number. So when I first got my license, I bought a car for the first time, 
and it was a New South Wales register, so I had to tra change it to Queensland registration. They gave me the license plate number, and guess what number was on it? There was a four on it. Now, I was a Christian at this time, and I looked at it, and I shuddered. Like, I, I literally, I felt it in my body. I hesitated. All my life, I was told four was unlucky. <sighs> so much inside of me wanted to change that. But I took the plate, put it on the car, and got on with my life. And just like the way I approach God, isn't it so easy to let the culture around us shape how we approach Him? If I do this, I will receive good luck. If I do this as a Christian, it will result in bad luck. See, the culture tells me that I can fit God neatly into a box and access Him when I need Him. He'll come through for you as long as you follow the right formula. Friends, we can't expect God to just show up like a lucky charm when we need Him, especially if we don't have a relationship with Him. Just like this battle, God may allow His people to lose and fail and be defeated, then allow us to carry on a false relationship with Him. Superstition, lucky charms, they have no place in, the worship, in our worship and faith. Let's put God on the throne over our lives where He belongs, trusting Him, submitting to Him, knowing that He's a powerful King. And yes, depend on Him, pray to Him, cry out to Him, asking Him to show His power over the enemies in life. But also allow Him to lead us, trusting and submitting to Him, because He in sovereign love defeated our greatest enemy for us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to love you and love others as you've commanded us to do because you're worthy of our lives, because you're the king. Help us not to worship our, our kids, our families, our marriages, our jobs, our studies, our results, our reputation or status. Father, we're sorry for the times we've treated you like a good luck charm, only accessing you when we want something, when we want our way, reducing you to some sort of divine force for our own gain. God, you are sovereign. You're the king. You deserve center stage. Help us to joyfully submit to you in obedience, aware that we can't control or manipulate you, but instead surrendering our lives willingly because you are worthy of our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.